Hello, this is Oluwa Toyin Oluwa Apo, the host of the Made Musings podcast, the podcast that focuses on everyday issues, illnesses, and disabilities that affect everyday people. Find us anywhere you listen to your podcast and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Meet Muses. Please subscribe. Welcome to another episode of the Meet Musings podcast. Today, I have a guest calling in all the way from Tennessee in the U.S. He has had an exciting life as a successful bankruptcy attorney with multi-attorney law firms, but all that changed when he was diagnosed with leukemia. Leukemia is a cancer of the blood. It is life-threatening. So I'm not surprised you went from being a successful bankruptcy attorney to being bankrupt yourself. How ironic is that? Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So can you please uh, tell us, I mean, what happened really? Sure. Yeah. So uh, like you said, I was a bankruptcy attorney, kind of got into doing legal work in general. I did, um, you know, in the US, we do it a little different than the UK. We have um, the solicitor and barrister roles usually held by the same person. So you have some people that do one or the other, and you have some people that do both. And I did a little of everything. I started out doing things like uh, criminal law and family law. And so I was doing all this different stuff. And I, I quickly found that I didn't really like fighting over children, dealing with criminals. So I kind of got into the bankruptcy world. I mean, this was 2008, 2007. And if you think back to that time, there was a little bit of a economic crisis going on worldwide. And particularly in the US, it was a lot of people were hit pretty hard. And so there was a lot of that kind of work. So I was very busy. We even had a television commercial. So we were, we were like on TV and, and advertising and we were filing hundreds of bankruptcies a year. And it was going pretty well until I got sick. So. Oh, wow. So you said you had a television commercial going. Was that for your firm? It was just for my firm. And then I had, um, it was myself. And at one time I had two other attorneys working for me. Um, in the spring of 2008, one of the attorneys left to move to a different state. She she was getting engaged and wanted to be closer to her soon-to-be husband, so I didn't blame her for that. And then in the summer of 2008 is when I was diagnosed with leukemia. Well, it was really, in, it was uh, September of 2008, and, and uh, the other attorney that, that was working for me, he actually put in a two-week notice a week before I was diagnosed. So we were in a situation where we went from you know, in a few months, three attorneys down to two attorneys and then down to one attorney. And then I got sick and was in the hospital. So we went to zero attorneys in, wow. in, in a couple of week period from two to zero. And that really created a, a challenging financial situation. We had about $5,000 a week in regular expenses at the law firm and uh, no money coming in. So it was, uh, it was tough for sure. And uh, of course, we had ins- I had health insurance, but it wasn't as good as what I have now. And, you know, we don't have um, our health insurance system is significantly different here. So the quality of your insurance really matters, especially then. This is pre-Obamacare days. So things like pre-existing conditions and stuff were 
you really, it really was difficult to sort through when you had good insurance and when you didn't. Turned out I had okay insurance, but it wasn't as good as I would have liked because I didn't have any um, disability care built in. So I didn't have any money coming in at all. Yeah, you said uh, your insurance didn't cover pre-existing conditions. Well, for you, leukemia was just a newly diagnosed yeah. at that time. I was, it was covered, yeah. So I was covered from the medical side, which is good. Because the type, so there's all kinds of different leukemias. The one that I was diagnosed with is called chronic myeloid leukemia. And it was honestly, if I'd gotten diagnosed two or three years earlier, it was a death sentence. But they had come out with a new drug protocol, a drug called imatinib, that it functions as a highly targeted form of chemotherapy. And it's essentially a miracle drug. I take this pill once a day. And that's it. And, it. and it pretty much keeps the leukemia in, in, in check. It's still there, but it doesn't have any negative side effects really other than a little bit of nausea with uh, when I take the pills. But the trade-off nausea versus death seems like a good trade to me. So I just keep taking my pills. Those are very expensive. They've gone generic now, so they're a little bit less expensive, but they were about $40,000 a month uh, is what it would have cost if my insurance hadn't covered it. So. All right. So are you still on this medication right now? I am. Yeah. 10, 10, 12 years later, I take it once a day. How does the medication affect you? Does it have any side effects? Yeah. The side effects are pretty mild and they, and I've gotten used to them over time. So um, like I said, the side effect of not taking it is, is dying. Um, so the side effects, whatever they are, I probably would deal with them, but it's mostly just a little bit of nausea. So I, if I take it with a meal, it's not too bad. If I forget to take it with dinner though, uh, and I have to take it, you know, on an empty stomach, it can make me a little nauseous. So, you know, I feel like I'm going to vomit, but I never have. So, (laughs) so it isn't that bad. And then the other thing is sometimes you get a little cramping or diarrhea, but it's not, it's, it's all manageable. You know, it's, it's a lot better than some chemos that, you know, you, you get very, very sick. This, because of the way it works, it targets a specific protein. And I don't understand all the science behind it because, you know, I don't, who does, right? <laughs> but uh, but it, it, what it does is it inhibits the specific protein that's used in the reproduction of the leukemia cells inside of your bone marrow. And it makes it more difficult for those cells to reproduce, which means that the level of the disease in your system stays relatively low. So you don't have any of the sort of nasty other side effects. And uh, so it's really, it's really not too bad. I'm very fortunate, the type of drug that I have. And of course, when I was first diagnosed, we really, I mean, we thought I was going to die. Like, uh, I don't know if any of your listeners know about white blood cell counts, but. Of course um, we do. Yeah. So, so, you know, the normals four to 10,000 cells per cubic milliliter or whatever it is, you know, something like that. And uh, mine was 258,000 when I was diagnosed. Wow. Yeah. And the only thing I knew at the time was that that was really bad. Wow. <laughs> so, that that yeah. was crazy bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I had had a cousin who died of a different leukemia a couple of years before I was diagnosed. And when she died, her leukemia um, was such that her white blood cell count was around 150. So I was just saying, okay, I'm at 250. I'm definitely going to die. So you mean 250,000? Yeah. 50, yeah. Because it's yeah. like 150 and 250, which is like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 250,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I just kind of went, well, I'm going to die. I accepted that immediately. I remember in the emergency room the first night after they told me this white blood cell count, my uh, dad came to see me and he said, 
and this was in September, he said, if you live till uh, February, we can go to Australia. And I was just like, I hope I make it till Christmas, right? Like, that, like I didn't even the idea of living until February, you know, six months later, uh, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a thought at the time. And that has a tendency to change your perspective on life. It can really focus you and get you. It's the same with taking a chemotherapy pill every day, right? It can focus you every day. It's a reminder of your mortality. And I consider that a big blessing. If I didn't have a daily reminder of my own mortality, I might slip back into practicing law, which was lucrative, but um, was also not emotionally satisfactory. You know, it wasn't something that I really loved doing. Okay. So how long did it take you from being diagnosed with leukemia to you being bankrupt? It was about a year and a half. Um, We tried really hard to pull through that. We accumulated about $150,000 in credit card debt. I had really good credit before that. So I was able to just pay stuff on credit cards. And I kept thinking, well, one of these days I'll get through this and I'll start making money again and we can pay this off. And I did get through it, but by the time I did, we had such an enormous amount of debt. It was it was really, really, really overwhelming. And then on top of that, we had the economy had gotten worse. It was then two thousand ten. Yeah. Yeah. So two thousand eight <laughs> and then a year and a half later it was two thousand and ten or the beginning of two thousand ten and the economy was really tough. Yeah. And we had all this debt and uh and I was offered a job working for a trucking company and I thought I don't like practicing law. It's going to take me years to dig out of this. Maybe I just need to say, forget it and quit practicing law and go do something completely different. And it was actually, I mean, it was hard. It was a hard decision. I'm not, you know, I don't want to take it lightly, but it was the right decision in as much as if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be where I am now. So how did you cope with your diagnosis when you say with all these treatments and all the information coming to you, you had to go through chemotherapy, and was it a fast-paced treatment? Was it started instantly? Yeah, so it was about, yeah, it was very quick. So they had to do a bone marrow biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. We had to wait for those results to come back, but it was maybe a week at the longest before I was confirmed what type of leukemia I had, and then we started on the treatment. And of course, we didn't know it would work. I mean, it works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everyone. So we had to start and then we had to do a lot of monitoring. So it was blood work every, initially it was every two or three days I had to do blood work. And then, and then it got to every week and then every two weeks. And now it's just once a year. So it's not so bad. And I usually do that. And I've since moved to Tennessee. Um, and I, for some reason or another, you have to go to the same lab to do this work because they use a multiplication factor of some sort. And so I end up with a situation where I uh, make a trip every year up to Michigan for my blood work. And I usually try to do it around Christmas. It's about 500 miles and it's like I can go up and see my family and and stuff. But uh, this year, (laughs) coronavirus. (laughs) So so I did go to Michigan um, because I had to get my blood work done. So I drove to Michigan. um, This year? Do you mean? This year, yeah. Like last week. Oh, good. um, So I drove up there. I um, stayed overnight in a hotel, didn't see my family, uh, went to the doctor and got my blood drawn. And then I went to see my mom and uh, it was cold, but I I put on a mask and, and stayed, uh, you know, in, in the front porch area of her house and just yeah. kind of so she, talked so to her so, so I could see her. But, yeah. 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 So we were, you know, s- 10 feet apart and, uh, and wearing masks, but at least I got to see her for a few minutes and, um, and, uh, that was nice. Saw my sister the same way and, and then, uh, then turned around and came back home the next day. 
which is a lot of driving, you know, it's 12 hours driving each way. It's a lot for a weekend, but you just do it because that's what you have to do this year. So, well, the, the good part of it is that you did see your family, your boy, you couldn't actually hug them. Yeah, or, true. I mean, have that special family time. It was yeah, just and, distance, which is what we have yeah. to do now. It's just the fact of life this year. And I think I'm, I'm optimistic with the vaccines coming out that we're going to get past this in the next six months or so, but we're just going to have to deal with it for the next little while, however long that is. And, and I mean, listen, I'm fairly confident that I don't have coronavirus and I'm fairly confident they don't. So it was probably a low risk encounter oh, wow. anyway, but uh um, my mom is 70 years old. I, I can't take that chance, you know, oh, <laughs> like, and I was traveling. So, well, I didn't think I had coronavirus. There's no, I mean, I had to get fuel and, you know, things like that. So there's always a chance of exposure and you just can't take that. Now, I guess I'm a week and a half beyond it. Now I'm probably, uh, in the clear on that, but, uh, but still, I mean, I'm out and about, uh, in Tennessee, we're less locked down than they are in Michigan. So, um, you know, we're still able to do our uh, grocery shopping and there's uh, restaurants and stuff open. So occasionally we're able to get out and it's all, you know, 50% capacity and socially distanced and stuff. So it's still weird, but it's, it's at least nice to get out of the house once in a while. So. Oh, that's great. You, I mean, it sounds like Tennessee is the place to be right now. Is it Dubai? Because <laughs> everybody I know in Manchester seems to have run away to Dubai. <laughs> yeah, they're all enjoying the sunshine in Dubai right now. Yeah, I've thought about, so I, this summer when the numbers were a little lower, I did do a little bit of traveling. I went to, uh, I went out to the Western part of the U.S. and went to Yellowstone with my dad. Oh, um, wow. And it was really great because this is um, June and they had just opened the park up and had been closed for a while. And there was no one there because, you know, everyone was, no one had planned to go. So we were, you know, we were able to, Yellowstone is normally in June is essentially a parking lot. You know, the you'll see a American bison on the side of the road and three, 30, 40, 50 cars stopped taking pictures of it. And, you know, we were driving around and really not seeing any traffic or any other people. And so it was probably more socially distant than anywhere else we could have been at that point. So well done for doing that with your dad. It's always good to have that father, son, father, daughter time. So I just want to go back to your leukemia diagnosis. What impact did that have on your mental health at the time? I have sort of a weird life perspective. I don't really, I should probably come up with a name for it, but I've called for many years, I've decided I wasn't going to have bad days. So when I was 17, just 13 years before I was diagnosed, one day I woke up and I said to myself, I'm not going to have a bad day today. And I just said, today's a good day over and over again. And I did that sort of positive affirmation. Uh, without even knowing that's what it was called. For weeks and weeks and weeks, I just said that every day. And and after a while, I just sort of conditioned myself to believe that it was a good day. And I have a mentor who says, somewhere in the world, someone's having the best day of their life. And somewhere else in the world, someone's having the worst day of their life. And his point is, I think that objectively, days are neither good nor bad. And it's really about how you perceive the day. And so I just started doing that. I just started saying, today's a good day. And so when I got sick, um, I'd had a long period of time where, you know, more than a decade where I had really not had any bad days. Yeah, bad stuff happened to me, but, you know, good and bad stuff happens every day. And so the night I was diagnosed was at 10 o'clock at night. I got a call from the doctor saying, hey, you have to come in right now. You know, I was in the emergency room that night and my brother came in to see me and he said, he said, 
you know, I bet today's a bad day. It was almost like he wanted to prove it wasn't possible not to have bad days. And I was like, no, actually, today's been pretty good. Because, you know, the first 22 hours of the day, I was uh, I was fine. Uh, and, and I'm not going to let this last little bit ruin my day. And then the next day was a little bit more challenging, of course. Because, you know, that day, I knew the whole day that I had leukemia. But I remember it was around 4 p.m. in, in the uh, afternoon. And there was a change of shift at the hospital. And this new nurse came in and she walked into my room and she looked at me and she recognized me and she said, oh my God, Jeff, I'm so sorry to see you here. And I looked at her and I recognized her and I said, Shelly, I'm so happy to be here. And it was really true because this was a babysitter of mine from when I was a child and I hadn't seen her in, you know, probably 20 years or something at that point. And I was just really excited to see her. And I think that's how this thing works, right? Like, uh, if you want to have good days every day, you have to convince yourself you're going to have good days. You have to fully buy into it. But you get to the point where you've conditioned yourself to look for positive in all circumstances. So that little bit of positivity, the fact that I get to see this person that was one of my favorite babysitters, was enough to make that whole day amazing. And you know, and, and you could say, well, it was terrible. You're in the hospital. You think you're going to die. Well, all that was true. But, but I was also surrounded by people that loved me. And I was in a situation where I had done a lot of really great things in my life. Before that, I'd traveled a fair amount and I'd been able to see things like the pyramids and, you know, and, and Petra and Jordan and Machu Picchu and Peru. And, and I, you know, and I, and I'd lived sort of an extraordinary life already. And because of that, I was okay with whatever happened. I think if you condition yourself to look for positive, you're going to, you're not going to regret it. And then what's going to happen next is you're going to realize if you do get through whatever hard thing you're going through, that sometimes those are the best things that happen to you. Cause you know, objectively getting leukemia and being forced into bankruptcy was very difficult. There's no doubt about it. It wasn't like every day I was the happiest person in the world. And I was always like, Oh, I'm so glad this is happening to me. I don't want to say that, but, but I, I found something positive every day. And when I look back at that period of time now, it made me such a better person. And like I was saying about having a daily reminder of my own mortality, it's caused me to live my life in a, in a really different way than I would have otherwise. It's forced me to get into different career paths that I wouldn't have necessarily chose, but have been much more re rewarding for me personally. It's allowed me to meet people that I would have never met otherwise that have been amazing people. And, and do things like this, come on your show, like, and share this stuff. I love telling people that they can give up bad days like that to me. Like if I could get one of your listeners to say, you know what, I'm going to try that. I'm going to tell myself today's a good day, 20, 30, 40 times a day until it becomes true. It would change their life. You can change one person's life. It's worth it. Right. I mean, it's just such an amazing experience to live, you know, unbroken strings of good days. And the great part is even if it, only works 90% of the time, it's still way better than, than the default. Most people uh, have mostly bad days. It's, it's a sad fact of reality is that most people look at their life and they're, they're not happy with where they are and they just kind of are settling. And um, I don't think that's a good way to live your life. I think you have one life and uh, you have to dream big and then you have to pursue those dreams. Oh, definitely. We all have one life and we have to pursue dreams. And you seem, I mean, you're the, about the third person I'm interviewing from the U.S. who's been diagnosed with cancer and they had a mantra for them. 
for one person, it was, I can do this. I can do this. I can live through this day. And for another person, it was something else. And yours was, today is a good day, even though you're going through cancer. I don't get it, really. So the thing about affirmations and mantras is that there's this thing called the, um, well, there's called different things. The the reticular activating system is what Tony Robbins calls it. There's a thing called the Bader-Meinhof effect, which is essentially, this is the phenomenon where your subconscious mind recognizes things that are familiar. So basically, if you get a new car and then all of a sudden you start seeing all of your neighbors have the same car as you, you know, it's not that uh, that they went out and bought that car as soon as you did. It's just that, you know, that you start to recognize them because it's familiar to you. Because there's all this this data coming at us all the time, good and positive and negative and, you know, all, all sorts of stimulus all the time. And your brain can only filter through it so fast. And so... If you you start to recognize what's familiar and if you convince yourself of something like I'm going to live through today, if you say that over and over again, then when when you feel stronger and you feel healthier, um, it's it's reinforcing that mantra. And it's the same thing with, uh, you know, today's a good day or, uh, you know, I don't have bad days or, you know, any of that things. What happened to me is I said it all the time. And then one day I walked into a convenience store and the guy behind the counter said, how are you doing today? And I said, I don't have bad days, you know, (laughs) like, or, you know, I just said it. And then I went, holy cow, it's true. I don't have bad days. Like it it hit me. Like all of a sudden I realized I hadn't had a bad day in several months. And, uh, you know, that, that was when I was 17, like I said, and now um, that's 25 years ago, a quarter century of, of, of not having bad days. And, and it's just because I said it over and over again, it's not magic. Anyone can do it. Okay, uh, we start doing that from today. Uh, every day is going to be a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day. So yeah, No well, bad no. days. Well. And today's a good day. You know, you figure out whatever resonates with you because it's easier if it's something that feels right to you. It's not going to feel 100% true. Like if you're having a crappy day and you say today's a good day, your brain is going to be like, no, it's not. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's it. But, <laughs> but you got to just keep saying it. Yeah, It's like going to the gym when you first start working out. Um, you don't feel like you're making any progress. And if you go every day for several, you know, for an hour or two every day, every day after a while it starts to be like oh i'm that person that goes to the gym every day and you, then you feel weird if you don't go to the gym every day definitely you know it's just something i'm going to practice or maybe from this moment oh yeah start right yeah. now it's the trick so I, I i spend a lot of time thinking about this you know I have this my own show where we talk about living the best version of your life and and uh, on my show, we, we talk about this stuff all the time. And, and what we try to do is we try to look at it this way. There's a couple of things. One, if you don't take action now, you might never, right? Because someday may never come. Definitely. In fact, everything that's ever happened to you has happened in the present. Nothing ever happens in the past or the future, right? Because no we only live in the present. So, and that, that's something that... Um, you know, the power of now is big on that, right? Eckhart Tolle's book, he talks about that. And while I don't 100% agree with everything Eckhart Tolle says, he is right about this. Nothing ever happens in the past or the future. It always happens now. There's another uh, author I really like, Hal Elrod, who wrote this book, Miracle Morning. And he says something to the effect of the moment you accept complete responsibility for everything in your life is the moment you can change anything in your life. That's true. I love that quote. And that's how I feel about the no bad days thing. It's like, you don't have to have bad days. If you accept that the only reason you're having a bad day is because you're allowing yourself to have a bad day, then you have the power to change 
that thing that you don't want anymore and you don't want to have bad days. And I'm going to tell you right now, is it easy to give up bad days? No, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than having bad days. Bad days are terrible, right? Like who wants to have a bad day? So, and and I don't want to, um, there are people that have legitimate medical conditions, you know, clinical depression, things like this, uh, they need to get help, right? I mean, I'm, uh, this is not a magic trick. It's not going to cure disease. It's not like I can say I don't have leukemia over and over again, and it goes away, right? Um, but, but I do think for the majority of us that don't have serious mental health issues, we can choose to recognize that we have power over our day. Oh, damn. thank you so much. So where are you at in your life right now? What do you do now? Because you said you no longer practice law. So I don't. what do you do? Yeah, so I started real estate investing in 2010 while I was working still. You know, we didn't have any credit. We didn't really have any money. So we had to get a little creative about it. But I bought a, a condo and rented it out. And then we bought another one a little while after that. And we just kept doing that for the next six or seven years. And we uh, partnered with people so that we could grow. But that's it. I mean, that's what I do now. I'm a full-time real estate investor. We own a couple of apartment buildings. They're small, but I mean, they're big enough for us, right? 12 units, uh, 20 units, things like that. So we do that. And then I do a little bit of other miscellaneous stuff. You know, I've got a couple of podcasts. I have one on real estate and I have the other one on, on like mindset. Um, we don't make a lot of money on those, but those are a lot of fun. And, you know, we just try to, you know, enjoy life. Like this year in February of 2020, so right before everything shut down, I uh, spent the entire month in Africa. I was in uh, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, and Ethiopia. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and we share about that in. Um, is, you know, that, our... is that with your leukemia? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And uh, listen, uh, it was hard, <laughs> right? Mount, <laughs> Kilim- Mount Kilimanjaro is hard for everyone. It's the highest mountain in Africa. Yes, that's um, it. Yeah, it's almost 5,900 meters, uh, you know, 19,000. How long did, you, did it take you to get to the peak of the mountain? About six and a half days. Wow. Yeah, right. so eight days on the mountain, right? So you take your time on the way up because you have to get used to the different elevations. Yeah. So you go, you know, walk six, seven, eight hours a day. And then you set up camp and sleep, rest, and then you walk six, seven, eight hours the next day. And you do that for, for, for six days. And then that seventh day, you well, it depends on what route you take. We took a slower route on purpose, so we'd have more time to get used to the elevation. That seventh day, you get up, well, really the sixth night, you get up at about 10 o'clock at night and you climb through the night to the summit, watch the sunrise from the summit, and then you climb down from the summit, um, that last uh, thousand meters or so that you climbed that night. And then you go keep climbing down and you climb about halfway down the mountain that day. So that's a super long and challenging day because you go from about 10 at night until, you know, 6 p.m. So it's it's almost 24 hours of solid walking, but it's 20 hours or so. And then, and then once you do that, you, you have another half a day to walk off the mountain. So. Oh yeah. That's just before the lockdown. Just before the lockdown. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was actually, so I wrote about this in a, um, a book that we put together called the coronavirus collective which we donated 100% of the money to charity and people can buy it on Amazon. But so in the Coronavirus Collective, I wrote, we had 30 different authors write about their experience uh, in the first few weeks of the shutdown, sort of positive motivational stuff. 
And uh, I wrote about climbing Kilimanjaro because I learned a lot about myself, you know, about moving forward and, and making progress and perspective, you know, different people living different lives. And, you know, you've got people that are climbing the mountain with you, porters and stuff like that, that are, they, all they do for a living is climb this mountain over and over again, you know, and they make $10, $15 a day climbing a mountain. And that's a, that's, that's not a great way to live, but they were very happy. And so there's a lot of reflection involved there. But, but the thing that was most interesting to me was that I really walked up the mountain in one world and walked down in another. I mean, we barely even heard of the coronavirus. I started climbing on the 14th of February and I came down on the 23rd of February, right? And uh, the world changed during that eight days. Yes. I mean, it really did. Like I'd heard of the coronavirus, like, I, and I was in China last fall of 19 too. So, and even in China in the fall of 19, no one was talking about it. Right. So, so, you know, within a six month period, the world changed, but the most dramatic part was this, you know, walking up the mountain, we really didn't think about the coronavirus at all. And when we came down, every single news story was about it. So we kind of missed the news. You didn't have internet access. Exactly. And um, when I look back at it, it's really interesting. On the 14th of February was the first day that there was a recorded case of the coronavirus anywhere on the continent of Africa, right? On the 14th. And by the, by the 18th, there were recorded cases in half of the countries. And by the time we got off of the mountain, it had come to every country in the continent of Africa. Oh, I mean, like, so, you know, we're in the middle of this... This the the biggest story probably in our entire lifetime. Like you know, for sure so far in our lifetime, but but hopefully the biggest story that any of us will ever experience in our lifetimes. That's you know, this, that's this what we're living through right now. Yeah, what we're living through right now. And it just appeared out of nowhere in a time when you know, when when we were completely disconnected from the world. So it was a very strange, uh strange feeling. And then, you know, I mean, I left on February third is when I flew to Africa and I flew back on March 3rd. So I was there a month and flying back on March 3rd to the United States, I barely made it back into the country without having to quarantine, right? Like, like if I'd come back a week later, we would have been quarantined. And then they would have, they started shutting flights down. Like it wouldn't have even been possible, you know, to even fly home. I don't think from Tanzania at that point. In uh, Amsterdam, you know, February 3rd in the Schiphol airport, there was, I didn't see a single person with a mask on. When I came back a month later, I didn't see a single person without a mask. Without a mask? <laughs> you know, it's just a weird thing to experience. Um, and so it was very, strange. yeah, it's very dramatic when you're traveling that whole time. You know, I mean, it's uh, to, to experience it in a foreign country that big of a change. I mean, even in, I mean, I was in Nairobi the first week of February and the first week of March and, you know, Nairobi was, uh, was completely different in a month's time. Yeah. And uh, it is what it is. I mean, we uh, as a world, I think are doing reasonably well adjusting to it. I mean, it's certainly very, very tough and lots of people have lost their lives, but, but it's actually kind of miraculous that the world has responded as well as it has. Oh, okay. Honestly, it sounds like you're living the best version of your life right now. And I'm trying. Actually, you actually did get through that cutoff period before going into lockdown, and you you actually achieved everything you wanted to achieve for that time. Yeah, well, I was very fortunate, and I was very skeptical if I was going to make it. I'm not in the best shape of, of my life, and it was really hard. 
But I'll tell you, it's one of the greatest things I did. And if people get a chance to try to climb Kilimanjaro, you're, you go through a whole range of emotions and, and it's extremely physical. It's, it's definitely the hardest thing physically I've ever done in my life, but it's also one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And, and it's just such a great, uh, it's just such a great thing to be able to do things like that. And that's, you know, you ask where I am in my life, you know, business-wise and stuff. Being able to have crafted a life where I'm free to take a month off is amazing. Some parts of the world that that's not uncommon, but for Americans, right? For for that's us, that's a luxury. Like it's unreal. Like yeah. it's it's not something that people do, and we have yeah. to really fight for our time off. My wife has a, a regular full time job um, that she loves, and she gets four weeks of vacation. But it's taken her five years to work up to four weeks of vacation. You know, and I could take off, you know, 20 weeks a year if I want, it doesn't matter. And we're getting really close to her leaving her job just so that um, we can take more time and have more freedom for ourselves. Is that with your real estate business now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've set it up in a way that, that it, that a lot, that it doesn't require me to, to be uh, day to day involved in the business. So. Okay. And what, what about your podcast? What do you do? What do you talk about? Yeah, so we have two podcasts. The first one is called Old Fashioned Real Estate Show. And that one we um we do mostly YouTube stuff. We we drink bourbon old fashions, right? The 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 bourbon drink. So we get drunk and talk about real estate investing. What? You get drunk yeah, on the show. We we just, yeah, we do. We get drunk and we talk about real estate investing. We pick a topic. It's usually just myself and my co-host. We we usually don't even have guests. And uh, the two of us just uh, sit down, have a drink and talk about whatever that topic and just sort of see where it goes. It's been a lot of fun. We've really enjoyed making that show and, it, and it's, uh, we've got some, some traction. I mean, we don't have millions of listeners, but we have enough that we keep doing it. Anyway, drinking Bob one on this show is definitely a way to get you talking. It keeps you happy and then you can just... Yeah. That's feeling. Yeah. And we're not, I mean, we're not getting like sloppy drunk, like, you know, slurring our words and stuff. We're just getting enough that we loosen up and we just have a good time. And when we've had guests on that show, it's been really fun because you get a little bit of a, people let their guard down a little bit. And we've had some really amazing guests, you know, everyone from economists to futurists to, to uh, real estate investors, best-selling authors. So that's just been a lot of fun you know, just kind of getting to know some people. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone that your listeners would know. There's um, uh, Dr. Ian Pearson is one person we had who's relatively famous in Britain. Uh, if you keep your eyes open, you'll see him quoted in The Guardian or something every couple of weeks. He's a futurist and he was an amazing guest to have on the show. We really enjoyed having him on. But but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And then the other show is called Last Life Ever. Last Life Ever is sort of our take on on you know recognizing that you only get one chance. You um, mean last life ever, as in yeah, last. yeah, last like this is it. It's your yeah. one chance. <laughs> and so last life ever, and uh, we just interview people that are doing extraordinary things with their lives. People that um, you know that are doing charitable works, or you know we've had some religious people on, pastors and missionary type stuff. But but I mean it's just, and sometimes it's celebrities. We had a. Uh, We've had uh, famous comedians. We've 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 actually interviewed uh, Dr. Pearson, a futurologist, on on that show as well because he's so fascinating. I was like, I was like, um, Ian, You've you have to, to come have on him. my show. You have to come on my other show now because he's really great. I mean, talking about you know sort of far future stuff is just really interesting. 
but it's whatever we find interesting because the brand is really us living out our best version of our lives. What does it mean to help people live the best version of their lives? How can you help them to do that? So there's goal setting stuff and motivation stuff. And that's when we talk about, you know, not having bad days and how to plan for the future. But there's also business stuff and financial planning stuff, because in order for people really to live the best version of their life, they've got to figure that stuff out because a big part of living your best life is being able to pay your bills, right? You know, might be cutting back on bills and living a minimalist lifestyle. For some people, that's a great way to live, but some people want to own islands and fly around in jets, right? And those people have to figure that part out. So it's not like we're not making a value judgment on what your best version of your life is, but we believe that Everyone has something to offer to the world. And we kind of, we don't kind of, we do owe it to ourselves, our families, our communities, uh, and the world itself to, to live that best version of our life, because that's how you provide value to the world. Oh, thank you so much for your insights and for sharing your experience with leukemia and all your podcasts. How can listeners connect with you do you sure. have instagram facebook i do yeah um so instagram's great it's just at jeffrey holst so it's just my name at jeffrey holst on instagram and uh, i'm on there fairly regularly if people message me i usually see it um but otherwise the last life ever private group on facebook is good too we, we pretty much let anyone in who answers the two questions we ask which is uh do you promise to be nice and uh, do you promise to try to live the best version of your life if you say yes to those then then we let you in so it's last life ever private group on facebook and i spend a lot of time in there um we have about uh, 1300 members or so and uh, it's a pretty active group and it's all people positive encouraging motivational Boy. type stuff and and uh, i've really enjoyed uh, interacting with people in there as well thank you for your time today and it's been amazing having you as a guest on my show thank you a big thank you to all our listeners who have been sending us messages through the message link. I would like to thank everyone who has listened in so far and contributed to this podcast. Thank you so much. We keep listening, keep sharing, keep downloading and keep liking. Thank you again.